0: Do you think there's a chance Anthony Richardson wins the starting job? I do. I, I I think there's a much more competitive situation at that spot than what most
1: people would, would think. And that's not a disrespectful comment to Emory Jones. In fact, it's a, it's a compliment to just how good Anthony Richardson is. And you go back to that 2019 season. You know, he came in at the end of the year um, during the bowl practices on campus and wowed a bunch of the existing players on that roster. Um, he's big, he's, he's strong He's got a, a nice arm, he's athletic um, But that's what you want, right? I mean, you're trying to build competition At every single position, including the quarterback spot And I, I think there will be competition there As I said, I'd love to see Emory win it Just because he's been patient And waited his turn But that's, that's not the way it works in, in college football these days you got to go out there and, and earn it And uh, so I think having competition there With Anthony Richardson is only going to make Emory Jones a better quarterback
0: Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. Will, it's been a week. It's been a week. Let's, uh, let's start off the pod with a little story about my Twitter nightmare. I am pretty sure that my Twitter account is getting shut down. And I'm pretty sure because Twitter has told me that three different times.
2: Is it because of the dad puns? Is that what got you?
0: No, no. The dad puns didn't do it in. Um, they, they didn't say, hey, there's too much SEC content in the world. We're going to sort of censor you. We feel like this is an easy way to do it. Nope, nope. Nothing to do with Next that.
2: Guess. Were you peddling black market Dogecoins?
0: Wasn't peddling black market <laughs> Dogecoin, but the person who, tri- who hacked me and hacked me successfully, might I add, was doing just that and tweeting at Elon Musk. So that was a great thing to have happened to me on Monday night and it's actually since gotten worse um, after that. So here's the context of this. Monday, I am about to go on Hester's uh, SiriusXM show and it's like Monday at, I don't remember what time it was, it was like five o'clock. And right as I'm going on, like literally being introduced, I get a message saying that there's a suspicious login to your account. I'm like, okay, that's kind of weird, whatever. I can't like go and tend to that as I'm being introduced on live radio. This isn't even a tape segment. So I can't even say to them, Hey, like, can I just figure this out in five minutes? Come back to me. Like they are literally introducing me right then and there. So like the 15 minutes passes and I'm like, all right, I go to my phone immediately. Try and try and go to my Twitter account and only to find the message of, well, you have been locked out of your Twitter account. Someone has taken this over because they were able to hack into your account and then I didn't have the two-way verification and I should have. And that's my biggest mistake in this whole deal. In my defense, I've had a Twitter account for 10 years. I've never had anybody be able to get my password and hack into my account. This person, this SpaceX person was successfully able to do that. And then, I find that not only am I locked out of my account, but they have taken over, they changed my profile picture, they start tweeting out all these random Dogecoin Doge Coins things. I had some people reach out to me and say, like, we thought you were just doing this as a joke. I'm like, yeah, that's that's what I'm going to spend my time doing on a Monday night. That's that's what, I'm so bored in May that I'm going to sit here and... No, no, did not happen. So all of that happens... And I'm like, all right, well, hopefully we can just show that this is that this is spam and this is hacked and then I can just take over my account, whatever. So, you know, had a few people who were able to kind of message, you know, go through and say that this, this account has been hacked, blah, blah, blah. Twitter, after a couple hours, whatever it was, acknowledges that this has been hacked. And then I had filed the report and all that stuff. And then the problem though, is that when Twitter got back to me, they're like, we can't do anything for you because this SpaceX person went in there and they changed the primary email and the phone number to their own. So there is nothing that they can do to verify that I'm the person on this account. I have screenshots, I have whatever you, I have links to work to show my identity and who I am as a verified Twitter member. And so then I basically have like tried to send three different messages to them. And the part that frustrates me the most is like Twitter acknowledged that I was hacked, but then they rejected me saying, well, we can't verify that you're the owner of this account because they switched the email and the phone number associated with it. I'm like, so there's no, like, that's just it. Like, there's just nothing that that I, that I can do at this point. And I'm like, trying to look for solutions or whatever. But I'm just a bit at a loss. And this most recent one that I sent, they usually take like a day to respond. And this most recent one, they took like 20 minutes. So like, guy, you've already emailed us twice. (laughs)
2: Listen here, bud. We can't help you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so I haven't decided how I'm going to handle this officially because I'm going to be 100% honest with you with how frustrating this has been. There's part of me that has looked at this and has wondered, is this the universe's way of saying that I should just not be on Twitter and I'll find other uses for my time? Because... It's been an extremely productive week from a work standpoint. I've gotten a ton of stuff done. Like I've been able to work ahead a little bit. I always kind of monitor my progress day to day, usually where I am and I'm way ahead of whatever point I'm usually at on Wednesday for the week. But then I'm also like, well, the problem is it's sort of like in this field, it sort of establishes credibility when you're on Twitter. And I've formed relationships with colleagues as a result of Twitter, for example, like The podcast that you listened to last week with Dave Pass, if you haven't listened to it yet, go ahead listen to it. Listen to it before you listen to this episode. Even that interview last week—that doesn't happen without Twitter. I had followed him for a bit, and then he followed me back. I waited about a month. I didn't want to look too desperate, but you know, I slid into the DMs, and boom, there we go. It's the same thing with Mike McIntyre, even Tom Hart. Our relationship with him started that exact same way. And then there's also like the whole like, yeah, you want to stay informed thing. Though I still have the podcast account to be able to keep up with some of the takes and whatnot, all that stuff, but. I've just kind of gone through this back and forth the last 48 hours of like, what does Twitter matter in my life? Is this worth the annoying hoops that I've had to jump through so far just to deal with it? Or do, do, is it really worth it to start a new account, which is essentially what I'd have to do, and build my following back up from zero? Will, what are, what are your thoughts on this?
2: Man, you know, big tech is coming after us. We've got a gas shortage. We're all just... A day closer to just living in a bunker, a bunker with Emory Picker. I'll just, I'll, you know, bring bring Rudy. We'll get a bunch of food. We'll just keep all the people out. We'll just—that's um, all we need.
0: I'm good with that. I'm, I'm good with that. Go figure that this happened hours after I tweeted about college athletes no longer having to hide their Dodge Chargers once these new NIL laws go into effect. I'm just saying somebody might have put out a social media hit on me. I, I'm I'm not gonna rule that out. I had a player reach out to me and be like, "Dude, that was spot on. You nailed that exactly." So, I mean, I, I know it's a real thing that people are protecting, but
2: so if you go missing in this call, I know exactly who to blame.
0: Basically, yeah. <laughs> Basically, you do. It, it sucks though because it's my biggest platform. I, I mean, yeah. I, I've been there's part of it that's that's ego, and then there's part of it where it's like, look, I've been working to build this up last ten plus years of my life from from a professional standpoint, so. Yeah, thanks a lot, Twitter. Really, really appreciate a great start to my week. Anyways, we got a ton of stuff to get to today that's much more important than that. Um, I had some thoughts on Jimbo's jab at Saban, which by now you've probably read a ton about, and just some of the the psychological motivation behind it that I don't really think has been addressed as much as it should have been. Plus, I wanted to dig into why the Henry Toto transfer news carried significance that was well beyond just what it means for Alabama's roster and why it's a pretty significant SEC-wide takeaway for the transfer portal. I caught up with our good friend Chris Doring as well. We got to talk some SEC receivers, some stuff that I think Florida fans are going to find really, really interesting as well. And then with Mother's Day this past weekend, um, we're, we're talking about moms and figuring out, specifically having a relationship with your mom as an adult and how that's changed over time. But Before we get to all of that, today's podcast is brought to you by the Saturday Football Newsletter. You know what's a really good thing to have when you're locked out of Twitter? The Saturday Football Newsletter, because you can stay up to date and informed. You can't lock me out of my email account Gmail. I've got too many of those things for that to happen. Sounds like a challenge. (laughs) Gosh, I had to like change all my passwords for that too. That was just an ordeal. Um, But anyways, that's, that's just something you do out of paranoia. Saturday Football Newsletter has the non-Twitter people like me fully informed this time of year, especially when, you know, you don't necessarily need to be sitting there on Twitter all the time trying to get all your news. You can get the big headlines and stay informed, especially May and June when it's a little bit slower. There's still stuff going on. The transfer portals all over the plate. How do you get signed up for the Saturday Football Newsletter? All you do, you go to your browser, you type Saturday.football. That's it no.com needed. Go to your browser, Saturday.football. You put your email address in there. You get the week, you get every single newsletter that comes straight to your inbox and it doesn't cost you anything. It doesn't cost you a thing. Adam Spencer does such a great job putting that together. You want to be informed this off season as a college football fan. You want to know what people are saying, but you don't want to have to sift through all that stuff. Go subscribe to the Saturday Football Newsletter. Will, did you know that Nick Saban is 23 and 0 against his disciples? Did you know that? Like it's a crazy stat that I'm sure nobody has ever heard before. Like it doesn't really get talked about like how good Saban is against his assistants. Of course you've heard that before. Feinbaum tweeted out the four closest games that Saban had against one of his former assistants. I didn't even realize it was this lopsided, where uh, Kirby, 2017, in the the National Championship, of course, was a three-point game. Then 2018, SEC Championship, seven-point game. 2015, SEC Championship against McIlwain. People kind of forget that was a little bit closer, but not really, where Alabama beats Florida by 14. They pulled away late. And then 2020, this past year, against Kiffin, where Alabama only won that game by 15. To recap, though, 21 of the 23 games were decided by 14 points or more. Those three closest games were all neutral site games as well. I went back and I found every single one of those 23 games. I did a a lot of of deep dives into this. And if you want more coverage on this, SaturdayDownSouth.com, we're going to have, there's a story that's coming about some of the wild stats related to this streak as well that I'm going to include in there. So of the 23 games that Saban has won against his former assistants at Alabama, 21 of them were against Power 5 teams. 21. There was that great quote from SEC Media Days a couple years ago where the legend Bob Holt, he steps up to the mic and he says, Nick Saban's former assistants are 0-16 against him. And then Kirby, just dry as possible, says, I'm well aware. That was less than two years ago. With that number at 23-0 and now, look at those last seven games. The one against Kiffin was the only one decided by less than three scores. It's pretty crazy to look at stuff like time-led versus Saban's Alabama teams for his former assistants. Just talking about Saban disciples here, remember that. Kirby has led against Alabama for five times as much as the next closest person. Will, trivia question for you. Do you have any idea who is second on the leaderboard? We're talking about Time led against Saban's Alabama teams.
2: Man, I knew Kirby just among Saban's former assistants. I mean, I can't be. I almost want to guess Kiffin. This feels like a trick question.
0: You're not very far off. Kiffin's third on that list, just by one game. And remember, you can't count the Tennessee game that you know, he had back when he was in his one year at Tennessee because he wasn't a, a Saban disciple yet. That's ah. an important thing to distinguish with a stat like this. Will Muschamp is second on that list at 19 minutes and one second. Yeah. Kiffin is third on that list only had one game against Saban as a Saban disciple, and he led for 13 minutes and 32 seconds. And he's third on that list. He's nowhere near Kirby, who was at 98 minutes and 55 seconds led
2: against Saban's Alabama team. Which to be clear is worse. (laughs) Leading by the majority of those games and losing them is almost worse than just not leading at all.
0: Get this, so in those 23 games, only three, only three, has Saban's team trailed in the second half? All three were against Kirby. All three times that Kirby has faced Saban, his team has led in the second half. Jimbo was definitely not that at all. Jimbo's faced Saban four times, three at Texas AM, and and then, of course, the 2017 opener at Florida State. That's the most of any Saban disciple. And in those 240 minutes of football, Jimbo led four. Will, you want to take a guess here?
2: Oof, it's got to be low. I'm going to say like 10 minutes.
0: It's not a bad guess. It's not a bad guess. Six minutes and 29 seconds.
2: I started to say five, but that felt disrespectful. So I rounded up.
0: Wow. That would have played. That's an average of one minute and 37 seconds led per game. So I bring all that up because Jimbo now is the one saying that he's going to beat Saban's you-know-what while he's there. What I often forget, and maybe I don't do a good enough job of communicating this or this whole dynamic, is what this means to Kirby and Jimbo, including the one year that Kirby spent with Sabin at LSU. He spent 10, it's 10 total seasons with Sabin. Jimbo is half of that, five seasons with Saban. Now think about the fact that every time you start talking about your goals, you have that yeah, but waiting for you, and it's the former boss. That can't, that can just be like daydreaming. That can be talking to recruits. That can be going to these like fan or booster events and having to answer the question about like, hey, why can't you beat Saban? Fisher's comment about beating Alabama's you know what while Saban's there, it came at a booster event. It wasn't at some pregame press conference, post-game press conference. It wasn't on Feinbaum. It wasn't at a charity golf event wherein the coach speaks for roughly five minutes to a swarm of reporters who only go to the three-hour golf event for that sole purpose of hopefully getting some good sound from the head coach. Sabin, on the other hand, provided that in that scenario. Shout out to Simone Eli who had the quote, the question for the quote that went very viral. I love it when journalists are, they're really not afraid to ask Saban a question that he can easily just shoot down or blow right past. I admit, I've gotten in my head with Saban questions a lot. And I'm pretty sure the first time I ever asked him something was on the SEC teleconference like four years ago, and it was a comparison question, which Saban hates, and he breezed right past it. But Saban, he gave a reaction to the question about Jimbo because in my opinion, it caught him off guard a little bit. At least that's what i thought maybe some people would disagree with that but the response of in golf was perfect you don't call out sabin like that that was the takeaway the people who call out sabin don't get that on record like think back to that leaked video of ed odron lsu locker room after beating them in 2019 of course now remember what sabin said a year later before the game they beat us last year and they probably have some confidence that they can play well against Alabama. So we're going to have to change the way they think. Oh my, did they ever that day? And after, it's like, man, that's what happens when you call out the GOAT. To paraphrase from Adrian after Rocky when uh, when Rocky or from Rocky 4 after Rocky goes behind her back to fight Ivan Drago in Moscow after he killed Apollo Creed, spoiler alert. It's suicide. Here's what I'll say about that. Rocky IV is the best, Rocky, and you can't convince me otherwise. I love that scene so much. Adrian's at the top of the stairs, and she's like, Why did you do it? And Rocky's like, I gotta do what I gotta do. And Adrian's like, Why can't you change your thinking? Everyone else does. Rocky then turns on a dime and he says, Because I'm a fighter. And Adrian pulls out the ultimate ace in the hole. She's like, It's suicide. You've seen him, you know how strong he is. And then she pauses, You can't win. Then Rocky storms off. He hops in his matte black Lamborghini and the most 80s training montage ever comes on with no easy way out. It's not really a training montage, but it kind of has those similar vibes. What a scene. So good. All right, my bad. We're off track. Saban. Saban. We're focusing on Saban here. Saban might take that personally. And if Alabama rolls a and again, we'll look back on Jimbo's comment and be like, man, you can't poke the goat like that. Jimbo, why did you sign up to go fight Drago in Russia? That could happen, and I wouldn't be surprised. But Jimbo knows his time to make the next step is right now. Losing this game is not going to make or break him. Dude's still going to have $45 guaranteed left on that deal after this year's over. He's not going anywhere. Does that mean Jimbo should just call out anybody that he wants? No. But I tend to believe a couple of things. If you're going to beat Alabama... You have to be a top 15 team. Saban, of course, hasn't lost to a team outside of the top 15 since Steven Garcia lit the world on fire back in 2010, also hasn't lost to a team in the SEC since then. If you're going to beat Alabama, you have to be a top 15 team who puts it all on the table. You need that juice from start to finish because if your coach or your team thinks anything less than that, you're done. And I mean they have to truly believe that. I think when we see teams who can push Alabama to its limit or beat Alabama, it's always a team who takes the shots downfield and they have a quarterback who can make the game-changing place. Probably with the exception of like 2019 Auburn, where you know they benefited off of those two pick sixes a little bit. Just gonna say that. But at least Gus Malzon did pull out all the stops at the very end of that game and the creative way he got that penalty. AM, dare I say, has the ingredients to at least have that mindset. And I know, again, they haven't been close yet. Bama has basically treated a and like Tennessee. Nobody wants to say that, but that's been reality. But I've always found Jimbo to be more self-aware than he probably gets credit for. And this goes back to his Florida State days. I'm not just talking about the fallout, but him recognizing that Florida State was falling behind with its facilities turned out to be spot on. But I remember one of the first stories I did for SDS, back in 2017. And I was talking to our good friend, Gary Stokin. Gary Stokin runs the Peach Bowl and he's been doing the kickoff game too. And so everybody remembers, you know, the Florida State Alabama opener in 2017. And I talked to Gary before that about how that all came together. It was being billed as the best opener in college football history, one verse three. What people didn't realize was the timing of it and how that played a part in, in that happening. Fisher didn't want to play Bama after he took over in 2010. He said the recruiting wasn't where he wanted it to be yet at Florida State. He knew that his team couldn't line up and play with Alabama. So he tells Stoken, he's like, give me a bit." So after Jimbo wins a national title, Stoken calls him up. He's like, hey, you ready now? And Jimbo's like, yep, let's make it happen. And that's how 2017 Florida State, Alabama became a thing. But I always thought that when the LSU and a and rumors would surface that it was silly because it's like, why would Jimbo leave Florida State to join Saban's division? And then Jimbo goes on and he takes the a and job and says, I'm not scared of Nick Saban. Did Clemson's rise expedite that? Absolutely. Did it help that Jimbo basically was given a blank check by Scott Woodward? Yeah, I'm sure it did. But I've always just got the feeling that Jimbo knew that he'd be judged by this. Like, what can you do against Saban's Alabama? Even when he won it all at Florida State in 2013, there were still people afterwards who were like, well, you didn't have to get through Bama. And hey, if the kick six doesn't happen, does Florida State really beat Alabama? And they're not wrong to consider that. But that would suck to hear after you reach the top of the college football mountain. You also just led A&M to its best AP poll finish in 81 years. But hey, you got crushed by Saban and you missed the playoff. So now he understands, look, This is the next step. Saban disciple or not, this is how these boosters are going to judge Jimbo. These are the same people who handed Jimbo a future national title plaque. We can't forget about that. And boosters in Texas, in my opinion, I think even we in the SEC can acknowledge they're just different, man. Like they're just different. Bragging rights within that state, which has five power five teams, that doesn't even include Houston, which basically spends like a power five team. It's just a little bit different. So what does this all come back to? This could be the best opportunity that Jimbo gets. He's finally got the skill player talent that he wants. He finally has a roster full of his recruiting classes. And look around, Bama's coming off a national title, but Bama's got a new quarterback and those wideouts that he could not stop the last few years, they're all gone. Bama has averaged 381 passing yards and four touchdown passes against AM. and m That's just under Fisher. Tua torched him twice, Mack torched him once, but now Those four first-round wideouts are gone. And A&M, on the other hand, has a ton of guys back in the secondary. They got Damani Richardson. They got Leon O'Neal. They've got this guy, Jalen Jones, who's a five-star corner who started as a true freshman last year that they're really excited about. On paper, this might finally be a fair fight. Just in terms of capitalizing on that is so important. And I'm also not dismissing how aware Jimbo is of Texas because this is a big transition that they're going under with Steve Sarkeesian. And last year was one of the first times where a and really had legitimate bragging rights, despite the fact that a and obviously has probably been the better team over the last decade than Texas, but do it a few years in a row. And that's massive in that state. Those boosters want nothing more than that advantage. All of that, in my opinion, goes into this. Jimbo wants October 9th to feel like the biggest game on the planet. Is Bama taking a and more seriously now? Maybe. But like, you know, was Bama taking LSU seriously in 2019? Yeah, of course. Like, was Bama not taking Auburn seriously in 2019? Bama was taking them seriously. Of course they were. What about the Ole Miss rematch in 2015? Don't you think that was a massive revenge game for Saban? Yet they still didn't have the answers to be able to win. They still lost those games even though they had a ton to play for i don't assume that jimbo is going to walk back that comment anytime soon i don't think it was said by accident either i think he said it knowing that this is probably going to see the light of day you know when media is present and even if it doesn't work out for him oh well he's still got more money than any of us can count
2: left on that contract will fire away i'd say one thing you know in just talking to people on the internet. Um, If your favorite college football team does not play in the sec west it's a blessing uh because you can have good seasons and not have to compare yourself to alabama and i knew in 2019 that lsu was the best team in the country when they played alabama's style of game and won the game after that there was no team that scared me and i look around and it's like there's never been a bigger gap between like alabama Clemson some years Ohio State they're not quite there yet and everybody else and so you look at the year that A&M had last year and their fans were you know rightfully to a degree like oh yeah well you know we got left out of the playoff x y and z the same thing would happen again Uh, (laughs) once you can beat one of those teams you can hang with the rest of them and like I said you can you can catch lightning in the bottle like LSU did not that LSU is near that level Uh, but it's after watching lsu play alabama for 10 years every week going into that game and feeling like we got a shot we're going to change our mentality and just getting beaten to a pulp over and over and over again you got you got to have nothing but respect for nick saban i mean it's week in and week out every team that plays alabama that's the biggest game of their season it's their measuring stick for their boosters like you said it's every single thing and i think that you know jimbo has proven like you said that he has won on the highest level, he's got the contract, he's almost there. But to me, last season, because he didn't even get close to beating Alabama, he's still what I've always thought of him. Like I said, you can hang out with those teams and tell yourself, okay, I can hang out with those teams, but until you're really looking across and going, okay, I feel like I'm not terrified anymore, that's where you gotta get into today's college football because Dabo, once he got that first win, it was back and forth, you know what I'm saying? And at least Ohio State, They beat Saban once. It was Urban Meyer. It was a different regime. I understand that. But Ohio State fans, again, luckily, don't have to do that every year. They don't get to, you know, they don't have to play Nick Saban in the down years when they lose to Iowa. And Ohio
0: State lived off that for a bit as well. Oh,
2: yes. And that's what I'm saying. Look at Ohio State. You know, the years that they lost to Iowa they lost to, like, these random teams, they didn't have to play Nick Saban the next week. Because when you have to do that, it's, it's terrible. I'll be honest with you. So, nothing but credit to Nick Saban and what he's done. It's something, you know, you won't hear me say very often, but... It really can't be overstated. That streak, the Dan Mullen streak, the teams he wants to beat, he just beats them.
0: The discussion about whether or not one of his disciples can actually beat him with Kirby and Jimbo now in these positions where I I didn't think Jimbo was worthy. If Jimbo had said this last year, I would have laughed him out of the room and I would have said, that's ridiculous. And I'm not sitting here today telling you that A&M is going to beat Alabama. I'm not. I'm I'm not going to... Go on record and say that that Alabama is going to go into a hornet's nest in College Station, though I think that atmosphere is going to be unbelievable. But I think context is everything. And I think when you are the guy who is being told you're not quite on this level, and it's your former boss, it's your former boss, I think it reaches a point. And I think even Kirby, when he has those moments where you kind of realize, oh, yeah, this does bother him. This does get at you, and it does motivate you in a different sort of way. And while you don't always let that side out, and he's going to try and show respect, of course, moving forward, but it just takes on a different sort of life. And I'm very interested to see the next chapter of this because now that a and did have that, finally, finally a and had that big step up that they've been waiting for in the post manziel era, the conversation just gets more interesting. It definitely does. The SEC's new transfer world. So there was... A micro-reaction and a macro-reaction to the news over the weekend that Henry Toto was transferring from Tennessee to Alabama. The micro-reaction, go figure, is that an elite defensive player is joining the reigning national champions. The obvious take is wow the rich got richer. If you had a nickel for every time you saw that over the weekend, you'd be a very rich person. They really didn't even need Henry Toto because they've got Christian Harris at the inside linebacker position. They're really really good on the inside with Moody as well. And he's the one showing up in all of these way too early mocks that is Christian Harris. I have my questions a little bit about Toto because some of the raw numbers are really good like yeah, you know, the guy led Tennessee in tackles last year was second the year before that. 10 TFLs he was charted for last year. But then you look at some of the PFF stuff and it's not great. Like 30 SEC inside linebackers graded out better than him last year. He was not good in coverage at all. And yeah, he's not asked to rush the quarterback, but he wasn't even graded as a top 10 run defender, which is kind of like what he hangs his head on. And again, that's just among SEC inside linebackers. How much of that was because he was playing in a brutal defense? Eh, I can go both ways with that. Like Pruitt's still a pretty good defensive mind, but then it's like, well, when your offense can't stay on the field, it makes sense that the Mike linebacker who never really leaves the field is probably the guy who's going to be hurt most by that if he's playing through injuries, all that stuff. But again, that's just the micro discussion with To'o To'. The macro discussion is that this move from Tennessee to Alabama we are entering a new world of the transfer portal in the SEC. There's a little bit of this like, yeah, when Sabin does it, everybody follows suit. You know, like We've heard that for a while. But think about the circumstances surrounding Tooto's announcement. The destination and the timing are significant. He was three and a half months removed from entering the portal in the first place. That was two days after the Pruitt news came out that he was fired and that this whole investigation was about to happen, blah, 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 whatever. The guy had basically his pick of the litter. You can go anywhere in the country, man. Alabama, Ohio State, Florida, wherever. You name it, you're going to be able to go there. Under normal circumstances, I thought Ohio State made a lot of sense because they just lost four linebackers to the NFL. Also would have made sense given you know, the NCAA's recent change, which is a month ago, the NCAA approved the one-time transfer rule for undergrads, meaning that Toto wouldn't need a waiver to play at Ohio State. Compare that to the SEC, who still had the one-year rule in place. That's for undergraduate college intracom- conference transfers. Remember last year, of course, Joey Gatewood, Cade Mays, Otis Reese, Greg Sankey ultimately decided to waive it because of COVID, but he did so right after the season opener, which was just a couple days after Joey Gatewood's new team faced his old team. Of course, not a coincidence, but Otis Reese was stuck in limbo because there was still the NCAA waiver that he couldn't get. And he actually blamed Georgia for blocking it, whatever. He actually didn't even get to play until there's three games left. It was brutal. Why is that worth noting? Because these intra-conference transfers have been hell. That's what the SEC wanted. It's a way to sort of self-govern. And and to be fair, the ACC also did that. But in March, the ACC lifted the one-year ban for the intra-conference transfers. Then the NCAA makes its announcement. And the writing on the wall is that the SEC is going to do it too. That won't be decided until the June 3rd vote with the SEC presidents, according to Aaron Suttles of The Athletic. But read between the lines here. Do you think toto is going to bama in his pre-draft year if he thinks he's about to endure a massive headache with this all because of the sec rules no way there's no chance especially when he could have gone anywhere this rule is going to change soon the one-time transfer rule for undergraduates will be in place in the sec they won't have to sit that year so why is the sec doing this all of a sudden Last Friday, a day before Toto's announcement, we find out that NCAA president Mark Emmert recently extended Mark Emmert. Congratulations to him. He said in an article to The New York Times that he would recommend that college sports governing bodies approve new rules before or close to July 1st, which is when Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi and New Mexico have new name image likeness laws going into effect. How does that relate to the transfer portal? When you understand that the sec is always about getting a competitive advantage and basically everything it does with football it makes perfect sense if all of these states and not just a few major ones in the south have these new nil laws put into effect that levels the playing field in that way so if all these states have the same nil laws and the sec is the only major conference still with this forced one-year ban for the interconference conference transfers That's tough to sell to recruits. Or rather, it's easy to sell for the non-SEC coaches recruiting against the SEC, and it makes the SEC look like it hasn't adapted to the times. Kids want freedom, they want the power. If the SEC looks like it's restricting that in any sort of way, it'll be used against it. If is this more about optics than anything else? Probably, yeah. But now if everyone else is doing away with the one-year ban for undergraduate transfers within the conference, it's about time that the SEC opens that up as well. That's saying a lot, considering that this is the league that even had a one-year ban for interconference grad transfers up until 2018 people forget that when they put that rule in place it allowed no penalties for grad transfers and also players on teams facing a bowl ban under the current rules tooto wouldn't have needed to go through the ncaa for a waiver but he would have had to wait to see if tennessee would get a bowl ban how messed up is that? Like that's, that's super, super messed up to think about. Like the entire staff that recruited him is gone. He's playing in a different scheme with an offensive minded coach who hasn't exactly been known for playing complimentary football. Yet it would be up to Tennessee getting a bull ban in order for him to avoid sitting a year. And in football, I just hate the idea of kids having to sit a year to transfer. You only get so many years in your athletic prime. It's different with football than other sports. Now, does that mean that I want total anarchy? No, which is why I think the one-time transfer part is important of this. You can't just hop from school to school every single year. That'll prevent this from being total free agency as some like Dabo Sweeney have speculated that they're opposed to. By the way, can we talk about this whole deal? Like, yes, this is more work for the coaches and the whole like recruiting your own roster thing. It's pretty well-documented, but some say, man, you just didn't have to do that 15 years ago. Kids are different. You know what else wasn't a thing 15 years ago? College football coaches making $4 bucks a year. Saban was the first $4 million coach back in 2007. In 2020, there were 29 FBS head coaches who made at least $4 bucks annually. It's actually 34 FBS head coaches who had buyouts of $10 million or more. So sorry if I don't side with the coach who has to adjust to this. And if done right, by the way, this also isn't just a rich get richer thing. I know that was brought up a lot with toe and people are like, crap, Saban's about to dominate this thing too. Hashtag adapt or die. We'll probably talk more about the moves that come with a program like Alabama or Georgia. And when it involves the national champions getting a starter, it's different than breaking down the key addition for a team who played a bowl game in Shreveport. It's going to work both ways, though. That's what you need to remember if you're not a fan of this right now. Every time that Saban or Kirby or Mullen, they go out and they get one of these guys, someone moves down on the depth chart. A Kentucky, a Missouri, they're going to swoop in. They're going to be able to capitalize on this. If it means getting players in spots where they can play, I'm all for it. Not every kid who hits the portal is some like third stringer who didn't want to work like some college football fans think. But I like that all signs point to Henry Toto being able to play this year. And while TJ Finley, he's a third stringer, I'm not saying like he's one of these kids who didn't like really want to work or anything like that. He just wasn't as good as Miles Brennan and Max Johnson. I'm also excited about the idea of him potentially going to an SEC team and playing immediately this year. If this creates a better pipeline for players to find the right places to play, I'm in support of that. It's going to take some getting used to, and it's not all going to be good. I'm not sitting here saying that. There's going to be moments in which you find yourself groaning, just groaning because on a Saturday in May, which is what Tennessee fans endured when they had to watch Toho go to the dark side to play for Alabama, where you're just like, this sucks. This is the worst. And then there's also going to be the times when you're fired up in June because you sell yourself on a guy who got sick of being the third corner at LSU, so he transferred to your school. It's going to be an emotional roller coaster. That much I know. In some ways, though, Toho's transfer was the beginning of a new age in the SEC. Or rather, it's like the beginning of a new ride. There's many twists and turns that await. And I promise not all of them will make you nauseous. Will, any transfer portal thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that as I've gotten a little bit older, you know, started figuring it out, it, the more I think of it, man, it's like, if you didn't play a Division I sport, man, like, respect these kids' decisions. You know, when it comes to opting out, transferring, all that different stuff... I couldn't imagine being in that position. I couldn't imagine every school in the country calling my phone and saying, hey, we're going to give you the best deal. This is going to be great, X, Y, and Z. These kids are, you know, 18, 19, 20. And I just hope everyone finds a spot for them. And sometimes you make mistakes. Obviously, you know, I did at 18 and everything. Shout out to the guy who transferred from Notre Dame to UCF, man. It's like you, you know, you got to find your situation. So we should never make these kids feel bad for doing what works for them and their families, you know, for what, you know, Big Gator 1979 says on the internet. I like that you went with 1979, not 1969. That was big
0: of you. Really big of you, Will, to point that out. Agreed. And I think that we're heading to a very different place in college football with how we feel about that. I think it's being interpreted by fans differently now than it would have been probably 10 years ago. But this is going to be part of the sport, and we're going to have to accept that. All right, let's go to my interview with Chris Doring. Always good to catch up with CD. We talked SEC receivers, some Florida offense stuff. And as always, we couldn't not talk about the HBC. So here's my interview with Chris Doring. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is a good friend, Chris Doring. CD, let's get the important stuff out of the way here. The IG stories, they, they suggest that the workouts haven't exactly fallen off. During you know the pandemic, all that stuff. Where where are we at now with all this? Is is the training up to six times a week? Is there a body fat percentage <laughs> that we're going for? Like, what's the end game here?
1: I actually feel a little guilty right now, man, because uh, my nutrition has not been as tight as I'd like it to be. So we're we're still training five days a week, and then uh, I think over overindulgence on the uh, the weekend festivities has, uh, has has bummed me out a little bit. So I got to be a little tighter with that, but the, it, the strength training you know i've got my son working out with me some too and and i I've, i'm i'm at the point where his legs are stronger than mine not that my legs are over my strong suit but you know his his uh, squats and and uh you know deadlifts and stuff he's, he's come a long way so it's been a little humbling to have him join some of the workouts over the last uh, 12 months or so
0: are we talking thousand pound club for your son that was a big deal in high school i remember <laughs> like if you could do thousand pound club with Bench, squat, deadlift—you were in rare company. Like, is—is is he getting to that type of level yet?
1: I don't know that we, his bench is not great. We, we still got to work on the upper body a little bit, but I don't know, man. He's got some naturally big legs, and uh, you know, he, he can. If we get that, if we get the bench up, he might be able to join the thousand thousand pound club, man.
0: There we go. There we go. Well, a guy who's not in the thousand pound club—at least I don't think—based on. All we heard about his weight throughout the pre-draft process. Uh, Devontae Smith, I, I don't think that we've talked on public airwaves since he, broke, uh, since he broke your record, but you said, I saw that you appreciated him doing that, kind of brought your name back up a little bit. I personally thought it was sort of disrespectful that not only did he break your record, but he had to go like 15 touchdown catches over it. Was that kind of a jerk move yeah. by him?
1: yeah he obliterated the record I mean it, it wasn't even wasn't even close but you know to to, to have that rest record stand for 25 years in this conference and then to see it get blown away the way that it was i mean it, it just speaks a lot to uh, how the offenses have evolved in this conference and just how good you know the passing games are specifically but it, it was fun to watch i I've really enjoyed watching the shift in Alabama's offense from you know pounding the ball with with Ingram and Henry and those guys to now being a a, a throw first uh, offense and the way that they've kind of evolved from you know Lane Kiffin uh, to Brian Dable to uh, to Loxley to Sarkisian they, they, every every coordinators come in kind of kept the good things that the previous coordinator was utilizing and then added to it with their own little fingerprints. So I'm interested to see what Bill O'Brien brings and how. You know, he's able to, to kind of uh, you know do his thing with Bryce Young next year and who some of those receivers are that fill the, the void left by uh, Waddle and Smith moving on.
0: Well, I mean, I was, I was looking back at the game log here for, for Devontae, and there was a point where uh, after the Tennessee game where they lose Waddle and Devontae has like a pretty quiet day. I think he had like 74 receiving yards, seven catches, no touchdowns though. So by my math, you probably were sitting in that spot where like, okay, we we know what the final number is, but there is that one point during the year where he still like needed five more. There's like seven games left. That's not a guarantee. Was there some mental math that you were doing?
1: I would be lying to you if I told you there was not. I mean, I I definitely (laughs) is celebrating the fact that Devontae Smith was able to break the record. Uh, and a, a, a tremendous guy, you know. Coach Saban talks all the time about, you know, when your best players are also your best people in the locker room. Uh, he's speaking specifically about Devontae Smith amongst a few others, but uh, just really been fun to watch him and the way that he's improved, particularly his route running, uh, over his last couple seasons. Uh, but I would, I definitely, you know, I always said, and I learned this from my high school football coach, John Clifford. Records were meant to be tied. So I really was hoping, you know, if anything, he would get to the, to the 31 and stop. But uh, he, he just blew right past that, man.
0: The good news is I think you're going to be on the podium with Devontae and Amari for a while. Because, you know, records in terms of the passing touchdowns, they're made to be broken in the SEC. But at receiver, I was looking it up and, and there's nobody returning who's in the top 50 all time in terms of receiving touchdowns in the sec and the active leaders in the sec i I think pickens leads with 14 and everybody knows he's going to be missing you know what looks to be the majority of the season and then you have like jalen Widermeyer there with 12 and then i'm pretty sure that there's nobody else there that's in double figures so you're good for at least another year go figure that both pickens and Widermeyer injured during the spring is there a young guy in the league right now where you kind of look at you're like Crap! That that guy could knock me off in the off of the podium in a couple of years.
1: You know, it, it's so unpredictable. I mean, I, I never would have imagined Jamar Chase doing what he did in 2019. I I, I had so in the '95 season, I caught 17 touchdowns that year. I I broke the SEC single uh, season record as well as, as having the career record. And then my teammate Riddell Anthony came back and broke it the next year. He had 18 uh, in the '96 season. Um, but you know that record stood for uh, quite a quite a bit of, of time until you know 2019 when Jamar Chase I think he caught 22 or 23 so again obliterating the, the previous record for career t- or uh, touchdowns in a season so you know you never know with the way that the 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 offenses are are being you know so wide open these days somebody can come out and have one of those big big years where they catch you know 20 something touchdowns now all of a sudden you're within you know, 11 or 10 touchdowns of, of passing me and Amari. So it, it happens much quickly, much more quickly now than I think it ever did before. You, It used to be you had to be a guy that was around for, for four years. Now, Devontae Smith was certainly around for four years, but had Jamar Chase stayed this past year and played, uh, he, he would have passed that number too.
0: True, Elijah Moore, another one. If he had stayed, you just kind of, really just kind of never know. Yeah. uh yeah. It, it does feel like a bit of a of a changing of the guard at the position. I, I think if you were to name the top four SEC returning receivers, it's probably, and this would probably, the this this would be the consensus, I would think. Traylon Burks. Keishon Butte, John Mechie, and then if he's healthy, George Pickens, though I've made the argument on this podcast before. I think Kiaris Jackson still could potentially be the more valuable player, all things equal. But Burks, Butte, and Mechie are all dealing with the same sort of issue where they really need to find that guy to complement them to make it so that they're not getting bracket coverage every single game. If you're filling out your preseason ballot today, who would be your two first-team All-ACC receivers?
1: I'd probably go with Burks, and uh, I would probably go. I would. I probably you just because I think he's going to put up numbers. I mean, we, we've seen the the transition from year to year with with guys, you know, stepping up and getting the opportunity to be the the one receiver in that offense. Uh, so I, I imagine it would probably be Metcuy. Although, uh, Keishawn Butte was unbelievable last year in his freshman debut. So I, I'm torn. I I don't, I don't know how you feel about it, Connor, but I, I'm I'm in the Miles Brennan camp. As good as as mm. uh, Johnson was last year, I I think I, for whatever reason, I, I maybe it's me just like personally cheering for Miles Brennan, knowing you know that he's stayed around and kind of done the opposite of what people typically do at that position when they don't win the job right away. Like I really want him to have a a great final season in, in Baton Rouge, but I mean if he he was putting up huge numbers at the start of last year, so I could see I could see, I could see Butte being there as well, man. I don't know, man. You, you, you put me in a tough spot. I'm going to go Mechie and um,
0: and Burks there at that first spot, right?
1: Yeah, I'm going to go Mechie and Burks. So I, I, it, it's a really, I, I'm going to do what everybody else does in awards. Like it used to be, you had one position. Now, now that, like in on the first team, in, in first team the basketball, you have like nine players. First team. Football, you know, you got you, you can throw a utility guy in there. You got a tight end. You're using four wide receivers. Like the math doesn't add up these days on some of those postseason
0: awards. You, I'm glad you brought up the Miles Brennan thing because you kind of pissed me off. I mean, yeah, I come out with my quarterback rankings. I put Miles Brennan at four. I'm kind of like going a little bit out on a limb, saying I think he can be a top four guy. Not selling my Miles Brennan stock. I've done the whole thing, and then you come in, have to one up me. You put him at number three. And it's just like, oh, (laughs) CD is the biggest Miles Brennan fan in the world. So why'd you have to do that to me?
1: I took your your Miles Brennan uh, fan club uh, presidential award away from you, man. I'm sorry about that, but uh, yeah, man, I I just think we forget, you know, it's it's out of sight, out of mind. And he was putting up some huge numbers. I think back to that Missouri game uh, last year, throwing it all over the yard that afternoon. I just, you know, I hope it would have been interesting to see what he was able to accomplish, what the team was able to accomplish. Had he stayed healthy, but uh, I really, you know, for whatever reason, I, I feel the kind of the same way about Emory Jones, and I'm sure we'll talk Florida too. But, you know, Emory Jones was the antithesis of what most highly recruited quarterbacks would do. You know, the fact that he stayed around and waited his turn and, and, uh, and been more patient. So I, I, I think I got a soft spot in my heart for he and Brennan because of, of how different they are than, than what most highly recruited quarterbacks are
0: these days. The emergence of the slot receiver in the SEC has been such a revelation the last two years. Now you're seeing these big guys like Traylon Burks and Terrace Marshall, who in your I think in your area, if they had played then, they're. Obviously, outside guys, well, maybe Spurrier would find a way to put like a Terrace Marshall in the slot. That probably wouldn't be too surprising. But now we're just seeing receivers of all shapes and sizes really thrive in the slot where, you know, Elijah Moore, Kadarius Tony, Justin Jefferson, Devontae Smith, Jalen Waddle, like it just goes on and on. And all of these dudes are lining up in the slot and getting free releases. Is it just a coincidence that all these studs are having so much success lining up there? Or do you think this is just where the game is, is trending?
1: No, the game's continuing to evolve in that way. And, and really, you know, we were doing a lot of that at Florida long before everybody else was. You, you mentioned, you know, I played in the flat quite, quite a bit. The thing is, and I, I tell this to all, you know, I mentioned before we came on the podcast that I'm helping coach my son's spring football at PK Young. And, like, I tell these guys, you, you don't learn one position. You learn the concepts so that you can play all of the positions. And, and go back and look at what... Look at what LSU did. Um, LSU, you, you may think about Jamar Chase being an, an outside guy, but he played some inside. You know, Justin Jefferson played some outside as well. So being able to move around and do a little bit of everything is, is really important in today's passing game. And uh, you know, I, I think that you're seeing a lot more of that. Look at what Steve Sarkisian did last year, moving guys all over. Yeah, you, know, you, can, you can gain advantages for your receivers by – putting them in stack formations or switch releasing them or, you know, put them in motion so that they can't press them. There's a lot of things that that you're seeing where I think uh, that the coordinators are really doing a lot to help benefit uh, receivers, not just by moving guys around, but the, the way that they use formations and motions to their advantage too.
0: Burks is the guy that I just can't get enough of because what he's able to do at 6'3", 232 pounds is just absurd and he needs more national attention. The kid's background is also incredible. Like all state guy in baseball, basketball and football just sort of seems like he's good at everything he does with well, probably the exception of trying to play in a Chad Morris offense, which I don't really blame him for not being able to overcome that. But what what impressed okay. you about what what Traylon Burks did last year and what do you think his ceiling is this year?
1: Yeah, it's almost like well, we didn't talk enough about him just because he was at Arkansas. And Arkansas obviously made big strides last year in Sam Pittman's first season. But, you know, I, I really liked what Felipe Franks, did that to, to, to go in there and, and help bring some leadership, and I think it was perfect for what they needed. But uh, Burks was the go-to guy, man. You, you know, I, I think back to that. Who were they playing? I don't even remember who they were playing when they, he made that one-handed catch in the corner of the end zone. That, I mean, that was one of the, the, the top catches of the year last year. So you, you're, you're talking about a guy that has size and physicality, particularly down in the red zone, but his hands are unbelievably strong as well. And uh, I am excited about being able to watch what he can do in uh, another season in that offense, understanding you know what he's being asked to, to do and, and feeling more comfortable um, not having to think quite as much. It should be a fun year for that Arkansas offense as a whole, and him particularly.
0: A lot of people want to know how in the world Florida is going to be able to recover from losing Pitts, Tony, and Grimes it felt like a minute there the buzz around you know Eric Gilbert transferring to Florida it sort of overshadowed that but now we're kind of back to figuring out who Emory Jones can really trust. And I'm still a little bit in wait and see mode with Jacob Copeland, Justin Shorter, who's the former five-star transferred from Penn State before last season. And then I was ready to sell myself in the tight ends with uh, Zipper and Gamble, but then you see the Cotton Bowl and it's kind of like, oh man, these guys are just not quite on that level yet. Rick Wells actually ended up getting the most looks that day. My question to you, based on what you've seen, based on what you've heard, because I know you're close to that program, Who becomes the go-to target in Florida's offense this year?
1: See, I'm actually not worried about the receivers quite as much. And and I know that's probably blasphemous to say if you go back and look at what Grimes and Tony and uh, Pitts did in in terms of production last year. But, you know, I think that that receiver and tight end are, are some of the deepest positions on Florida's roster. Uh, you mentioned a couple of a couple of the names with Copeland and, and Shorter. Uh, you forget about Trent Whittemore, who's from right here in Gainesville, a guy that I've, uh, you know, I, I grew up with his father and, and think very highly of, of Trent and his family. Uh, I think about Xavier Henderson, who got a chance to play quite a bit last year as a, as a freshman. So there's a lot of guys that have significant experience there. Where I'm more worried, to be honest, with the is on the offensive line. The offensive line has been very poor, very inconsistent in Mullen's first three years here in Gainesville. And and to Coach Mullen's credit, he's done more with less and found ways to overcome those deficiencies much better than most coaches would be able to. So I, I want to see them develop some run game. I know with whether it's Emory Jones or Anthony Richardson winning the quarterback job, you know, you're gonna see more uh success with the quarterback run. Those guys are are, are better athletes than Trask were in terms of running the football. But you got to be able to move people on the off, off the line of scrimmage in this league. And I want to see Florida be able to do that. I want to see them with more athleticism and some of their, their pass protection. They just they look very uh, top-heavy to me a lot. So I, I'm, I'm more concerned about them developing some balance with the run game, uh, specifically with the offensive line being able to get a push up
0: front. Do you think there's a chance Anthony Richardson wins the starting job? I do. I, I I think there's a much more competitive situation at that spot than
1: what most people would would think, and that's not a disrespectful comment at Emory Jones. In fact, it's a it's a compliment to just how good Anthony Richardson is. And you go back to that 2019 season. You know, he came in at the end of the year um, during the bowl practices on campus and wowed a bunch of the existing players on that roster. Um, he's big. He's he's strong. He's got a, a nice arm. He's athletic. Um, but that's what you want, right? I mean, you're trying to build competition at every single position, including the quarterback spot. And I, I think there will be competition there. As I said, I'd love to see Emory win it just because he's been patient and waited his turn. But that's that's not the way it works in, in college football these days. you got to go out there and, and earn it. And uh, so I think having competition there with Anthony Richardson is only going to make Emory Jones a better quarterback.
0: Mullen had this comment this offseason that I thought was really interesting. He's had had a lot of interesting comments over the last year, but the one that kind of stood out to me was, he said something to the effect of, you can have, you know, you can adjust to to anything. You can go out there and do what we did last year and have the number one passing offense in the country. Or, you know, if you have a quarterback and run the ball more, you can do that with him too. And everybody expects this offense to go through a significant transformation (laughs) post-Kyle Trask, but... How significant is that transformation really going to be? Because I look at the numbers and I'm thinking to myself, man, if you can find a way, and this is a big if, but if Emory Jones is a more accurate quarterback than what he's been when he's been given kind of these random reps here and there, and I don't want to judge him too much on that, then doesn't that really change what you're allowed to do you know, in Dan Mullen's offense moving forward? Because it seemed like, man, yeah. this guy's just got so much separation. But how do you see this offense looking from an identity standpoint this year?
1: You know, I'm a lot less, Worried about the quarterback spot than maybe I would have been um, had I not seen Emory Jones play in that Auburn game two years ago. You know he came in when Kyle Trask got hurt right before halftime. Didn't really look like you know he, he was all that that uh, frazzled I, when he came in. Led Florida to a, a scoring drive right before the half. I thought it was going to be disastrous. Uh, you know coming into that situation, cold off the bench, but he handled that really well. I think Dan Mullins done a nice job. If you go back and look at Coach Mullins track record what he typically does is is, is lets guys develop on the bench brings them in when they're upperclassmen and they they have a lot of success that way that that was the old blueprint that was the formula when i played i mean even up until 10 years ago you were seeing guys come in red shirt wait their turn start as as juniors and and play for two years now the the idea of putting young guys in positions to to play earlier i don't think i think it does them a disservice in a lot of ways so i've seen the way that, that uh, Coach Mullen has used Emory Jones, seen him in the in the red zone with some some RPO stuff or some uh, zone read stuff down in that part of the field. Um, he's had some, some significant snaps, as I mentioned, in that Auburn game when Trask went out. So I really believe that he has been brought along the way that, that he needs to to be able to have a lot of success. And why would we not trust Dan Mullen? I mean, he's been one of the best in terms of, of quarterback de- development uh, in this conference, in the last decade, uh, with all the guys that he's been able to to utilize, put up big numbers, both at Mississippi State and Florida, I have no reason to believe that whoever wins that job is going to put up put up big numbers this year offensively.
0: Let me let me back up for a sec because I forgot to ask you something that's been on my mind for the last week or so, and I meant to text you after the draft when I saw this happen because it just it was one of those things that if you weren't looking for it on day three, you're kind of like, wait a minute, what? Trayvon Grimes not getting drafted? Why? In, how in the world did that happen? Because you were there at Florida's pro day. Yeah,
1: I was shocked. I mean, the guy. First of all, you can't coach size, right? He's six five. He's got a, uh, the most beautiful looking wide receiver body you could ever ask for. Uh, was productive at Florida playing against SEC competition. I don't think he's the greatest route runner, and, and I think at times you know his, his hands could be a little inconsistent. But he made big plays and big games. Go back and look at the. SEC championship game made made a big play in a one on one situation like I, I it was it was beyond mind boggling I'm thinking he's probably a fourth round guy you know at, at, you know somewhere somewhere on day three and then did not hear his name called at all led me to believe you know was there something else that we we didn't know about was there some sort of medical thing going on was there some other issue that that uh, was documented that we we weren't uh, privy to but uh, this guy this guy was way way more way too productive not to be not to be a uh, 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 selected
0: in that draft the other day. Agreed, and some of the stuff that he's able to do, like you said, you just cannot teach that. I, I think you can make a really good case that Florida, and then you know Florida, especially post Jalen Waddle injury, you can make the case deepest group of pass catchers in the SEC this year. I, I don't know; it's a little bit all over the place. I, I find myself sliding with A and M, and that's a big if. Caleb Chapman is healthy I think for them for those who forgot he's the dude who torched Florida but then tore his ACL but if Chapman's yeah. healthy he's a deep threat Weidermeyer in my opinion is the best returning tight end in the country and then you've got Anaya Smith coming out of the slot who's just going to be fantastic getting a full am- amount of reps there and then I think Haynes King really trusts Chase Lane based on the report we've seen from them out of spring and I think he trusts him when the play breaks down and then whatever AM gets out of like the question mark guys, DeMond Demas the former 5 star, Baylor Cup the former number one overall tight end i I think that's just gravy is that a fair take for me to have or is there another group that you look at in the sec and you say and and probably bama is a little bit of the default here but is there another group that you look at and say they probably have a deeper group of receivers
1: i I still believe florida has a really deep group uh but i I, you know i think you make a good argument for for texas a&m um the thing that I'm most worried about for a and M I mean they w- what a great job they've done on the lines of scrimmage you know developing a physical uh presence that they never had before remember we we mocked and M for being soft uh when they got right. to the SEC portion of their schedule they they got beat up and, and they completely changed that narrative um with the physicality this year particularly on on the offensive line they they developed that run first mentality that I think helped open up the passing game quite a bit. And uh, you, you go back and look at the, the success off of play action. Uh, you go back and, and look at uh, what that offensive line was able to do in picking up blitzes. Uh, you, you mentioned Florida get toasted by the Texas A&M group. They got toasted because they, they couldn't get home. They they brought pressure, and that A&M offensive line was picking it up. And, and when Kellen Mond was unprotected, he was getting the ball out of his hands. It was one of the great displays of third down proficiency I've seen in a long time. Uh, so I, that's where I'm maybe most concerned about a and I know a lot of people say, ah, oh, they, they got some, some great young guys, but you lose four of those five starters on the offensive line, can they go back and and, and replicate the physicality they had up front, and, and can they have the success running the football that allowed them to uh, to be so good throwing the ball? All
0: right, let's close with a, uh, a Spurrier story. I know the HBC, he just had a birthday is there a story that stands out about celebrating his birthday? Like maybe a gift you sent him or him like telling you, Hey, CD, don't drink too much this weekend. You know, we, we, we still have these important spring. Although at the same time, you know, your birthday is in May as well. So like, you don't really have yeah. to worry about, Oh, I'm recovering. You know, we got a game, you know, in two nights or something like that. So is there a birthday story with Spurrier that stands out?
1: You know what? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh I was at, let's see, we had we had their fiftieth wedding anniversary over in Daytona. I was at that. That was a really fun event. And then we were uh, we had our our, our reunion Spur Spurrier era reunion a couple years ago. And it was it, it's fun to get together with those guys in that, that atmosphere and and have some some beers and and, uh, and and talk about old stories. I really, to be honest with you, Connor, I, I I've enjoyed him. With his his post playing or post coaching days, um, not having that that stringent schedule, like we we've, we've got we've had an opportunity to get together as as uh, groups of his former players and and just to have beers and, and uh, celebrate you know our success and talk about stories and and the guy just has the most unbelievable memory when it comes to details about football plays or games and and reliving some of that stuff so that that's really. The most fun to me, but um, you know, I'm, I'm still again. I'll be 48 in a couple of days, and uh, when he's around, I, I still it takes me right back to being like an 18 year old freshman, feeling like I I want to <laughs> please him with everything that I do and, and making sure I'm not getting yelled at by him.
0: How's the new restaurant? Is it? I saw you were over there. Is it looking pretty good? It's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's unbelievable. It, it's by the way, it's the ninth biggest restaurant in terms of square footage in the state of Florida. I mean, things absolutely huge. The best, yeah. The best part of it, Connor, when you get here, go upstairs and go into the bathroom. They created wallpaper from his hand-drawn plays, some of the most fam- famous plays in, in his career, and it's uh, it's really cool. They're actually selling that wallpaper now publicly, but it uh, it debuted in that in that uh, in that bathroom. So you got to go check it out. There's so much attention to detail. They did a really nice job with it, man. Can't wait. I think it opens uh, June 21st, I believe.
0: So okay, I, I gotta ask this then. Hypothetically speaking, if one were to let's say miss while urinating, can one locate Doring's got a touchdown? The play that he drew up for that.
1: You know, I was looking for that one. I didn't. I didn't see that one. They had my nine double pass, which we uh, used to beat uh, Alabama in the '94 yep. SEC Championship up there, and then they had another touchdown that I caught against Georgia in Athens in '95. But I was looking and I did get special permission to go into the women's bathroom as well to see if it was in there <laughs> um but i could not locate i could not locate the uh that that play was steamers y seven we we used in the uh in Lexington that night in nineteen ninety three but um couldn't find that one so i gotta ask if that was omitted or if that is somewhere else that was hidden i i wanna like I was trying to think too like what's good placement like do you wanna be right above the urinal? Would you rather no. be in one of the uh, stalls? I mean, I, I I was trying to see what the hierarchy for, for uh, placement was in the bathroom.
0: The the taunting penalty one was that ninety five Georgia is that the one that's up there?
1: That was nine no that was ninety five opening game of the season gets Houston and by the way they, that was the first they, the first year they put the celebration rule in and mm. I, I I bet if you went back if they had odds on it I, I would have probably been the longest odds to get the the first. Uh, celebration penalty in the history of of Florida football, especially being on the same team with Redell Anthony. But it was actually me that got the uh, the first penalty. So if you ever if you ever get down in some sort of tribute game comes up somewhere, that that is a, the correct answer is Chris Doring, 1995 against the Houston Cougars.
0: Good to know. Good to know. CD, always appreciate the time, man. We'll talk soon. Yeah,
1: thanks, Connor. Appreciate you having me, man.
2: Take care. What's my destiny, Mom? You're gonna have to figure that out for yourself life is a box of chocolates us. you never know what you're gonna get
0: i promise i didn't forget mother's day this past weekend though probably should have talked about it and figuring it out would have been a little bit more timely but we don't need an excuse to talk about mom so that is the subject of today's figuring it out i did Okay, so I was like very late on the Mother's Day present thing. Will, I don't know how you handle this, but it's like an ordeal for us. We have to my mom's a tough person, I think, to, to shop for to a certain extent. And it's not that she's like overly picky. Maybe moms are just like this in general, but you know, they like what they like. And, you know, trying new things is a little bit difficult sometimes and your mom probably has everything that she already wants so like it's sometimes it's a struggle to shop for both of our for both of our respective moms and so we ended up getting my mom Lauren found this margarita set that had like pretty much everything in it had the glasses the mix the limes I think my mom was like seven limes are in this thing I keep finding more and more <laughs> limes, but a pretty cool-looking thing and it ended up you know it ended up landing pretty well but what, how do you approach Mother's Day with getting your mom a present? Is that something that you have to think about like weeks in advance, or are you pretty much like, oh, yeah, like week of, I'll think of something?
2: Yeah, uh, this year I did week of. I think that, like, so what I'll do is I'll think about, like, I'll write down, like, what are my mom's interests? And then if I just can't find anything off of that, then I'll just be like, boom, let me get her something sentimental that she just can't hate because it's, like, sentimental. And mm. it, that's always the strategy to go.
0: That's good. Sentimental is always worth it. If you can find the exact right thing, always, always worth that little bit of extra effort. Uh, but want to talk about moms for figuring it out. Specifically, how has your relationship with your mom changed as an adult? How often do you talk? When do you see your mom? Can you share a drink with your mom? Well, I know the answer to that for you. Do you walk on eggshells around your mom? Do you now find yourself like being more sympathetic for what your mom dealt with when you were a kid? Well, we talked about this before. You have a unique relationship with your mom, but was it like that pretty much throughout your childhood too?
2: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. It's cool because like, you know, my mom was an older mom. She had me when she was 40 and she got to like do all the kids stuff like a little bit later in life. And then now that I'm like an adult, she's like, Oh, let's talk about taxes and business. Cause she's like an entrepreneur. So yeah, she's kind of, we've been that way the whole time.
0: I always, from my perspective, I always break up my relationship with my mom into three parts where like, and so that's, that's probably a little bit different than, than what you, than what you experienced growing up where like I had basic adolescence which is pretty much through high school, I would say, where it's like, hey, her job is to make sure that I don't screw up. Um, you know, she's trying to provide an environment wherein you know my brother and I we learn good values, etc., like all that stuff, get us to college, and hopefully we're on the right path. I always thought it was weird when that wasn't the case with friends. I, well, I don't know if this exactly fits you and like your your dynamic, like. Were you like the kid who didn't have the bedtime, the kid who could eat and drink what they wanted, or the kid like who went to a high school like your mom would like let let you like have parties at the house? Like was that was that a normal thing with you? You, you don't have to say all of that stuff, but were you the, basically you'll let me know if you were that kid, if you were the kid without a bedtime?
2: Uh yeah, I'll just say I was the kid without the bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> Exposed my mom after Mother's Day. But you know, she's a big time, like new age, like get your stuff done, get your grades, that's all I care about. Hey, it worked out for me, so
0: exactly. And you and you have your stuff figured out. I always sort of was jealous of that kid growing up, but now I think if I had turned out like an idiot and maybe I did to a certain extent, but now I think I would have resented it where like I would have looked back and thought, mom, I didn't need a friend. I just needed someone to teach me right from wrong. But again, that's not to say it's such a black and white issue and there are cases like yours where you turn off totally fine and you're totally motivated and you're on the right path and with everything. But I'm grateful that my mom raised me the way that she did. So there was that phase of adolescence. And then there was like college through my mid-20s where my mom is like a little bit more of my peer. We can have real conversations. It's also just kind of moving away from home where you call your mom regularly just to talk. I usually did that on Sunday nights and we'd have those regular conversations whether I was you know in school or whether I was in Nebraska. And then, I would actually be able to socialize with my mom, where we go to Country Thunder every year, and that was a, a big family deal, and, and we loved it. We look forward to it.
2: What is Country yeah.
0: Thunder? All right, so I've explained it on this, I, I, on this like a couple times, but for those who don't know, Country Thunder is a massive four-day country music concert, and they have I think three different places that they do it. Maybe just two now. They do... There's one in Arizona and then the one that we go to is in Twin Lakes, Wisconsin. Just you over know the border I, in I knew about
2: that. I was like, is that the country music thing in Wisconsin? I just didn't know the name of exactly.
0: it. Exactly. Exactly. And it always sets up where it's like right after SEC media days. So I usually like hop on a plane from like Birmingham up to Chicago and then Chicago we drive up to Wisconsin. So it's, it's, it's a... Very draining couple weeks usually, but it's it's always a good time and something that we enjoy and look forward to, although a little bit different because didn't get to do it last year, not doing it this year, but something that we did regularly in our family. And my mom was, you know, a big driving force behind that. But this the relationship with my mom changed a little bit after my dad died. Where the family unit it, it's just kind of different when you don't have that that father figure there. My brother and I would just take trips to chicago just to see her you know just to kind of see how she's doing and those those months in february are just they're just brutal man like brutal in the midwest having to deal with that and so we were her support system for a little while and it's a little bit different now because my mom has been dating the same guy for a couple of years they get to spend a lot of time together and you know they've kind of been each other's support system but when you go through something like that and i've said this before you just see a different side of your parent where i i developed even more respect for my mom which sounds weird because that was already starting i think in my early 20s but then something like that happens and you're like wow that's a much more evolved person than i probably ever realized and so the relationship has definitely changed and i haven't seen my mom in person since christmas of 2019 christmas of 2019 Yeah, year and a half. We had four four or five different trips that were canceled in the last year. So the first time is actually going to be in a couple weeks at my brother's wedding. And I can't oh, wait. That's I'm awesome. really looking forward to it. It's going to be awesome. So I, I've learned to appreciate my mom even more during the pandemic. And maybe some of you are in a similar uh, perspective, but wanted to take to the Facebook group to see just how has all of your relationships evolved with your mother's? John Houston Whitworth starts off here. He said, my mother and I had a less than great relationship growing up. Now, as an adult, I can see all the things that were going on behind the scenes in our life and can better understand why we were the way we were. Closer than ever now, and we talk on the phone every day. If you're talking on the phone with your mom every single day, that's a really tight relationship. like." if we're spending 20 minutes on the phone with our mom every day and just kind of going through all that stuff, that's, that's a different level. I, I, I talk to my mom about once a week, I'll go on a walk around the neighborhood, something like that. And we'll talk for maybe 45 minutes, but every day is, that's a commitment. Are you an every day on the phone with your mom guy? Well,
2: no, it's usually about once or twice a week for me. Yeah.
0: Every day is, is I mean, they, they pro- you probably also, if you're doing that every day, I would assume that you probably don't get to see your mom on a regular basis as much. Maybe there's there's long distance working there. Um, but cool to see those people who grow up and they don't have that great relationship with their mom and there's maybe resentment or there's a lot of dynamics at play. And then as an adult, you kind of put all that stuff to the side and you're able to just put, put whatever differences that are in the past in the past and you can just say, where where life is too short to have these, these grudges, these divides in our
2: family. Appreciate he's he's right that though, job. because like, as, as you grow up, you really start to respect your parents more. It's like for my mom, that's we I was talking about, you know, getting houses, doing things like that. She made this stuff look so effortless when I was young. And I always just call up and I'm like, how did you do all of this? Like how, right? it looks so easy.
0: I'm always amazed too, when I think about raising two young boys, like my mom did, and she, she went she was working part-time for a while to to be able to raise us and to do all that i'm thinking to myself like to be able to maintain a household and you know my dad would sell cars on saturdays as well so like it's not that my dad was never home my dad still had two off days but my mom just did had to do so much to be able to keep everything in order and and all the stuff that comes with like maintaining a house that i'm learning about now to be able to do that while raising two kids like lauren will often say to me after we have a full Sunday where we you know, catch up on chores and meal prep and all that stuff. And she'll say to me at the end of the Sunday, now picture doing this with a kid. <laughs> I don't know how some of you do it. I don't know how some of you do it, moms and dads alike. That is not an easy thing to do. Drew Page, he says, I've always respected my mother, but I think growing up knowing that she was balancing Having stepkids that were a handful, being there to step up when my dad was making barely any money in his business and going through his depression and also just being a mother while working a demanding job for the state government gave me a different kind of respect for her now that I'm adult. Respecting what your parents did for their profession is something that comes way later, way later. When I was a kid and I would I, my dad would come through the garage door and my mom would usually ask him, oh, how many did you sell today? And, you know, my dad would usually have the same look on his face, whether he didn't sell a thing or if he sold three cars. And I never understood the day-to-day grind of what goes with that because I'm like, well, if he has the same sort of reaction on his face every single day, it's probably just the same sort of work every day. And then you get out into the workforce and you realize, those days where you don't have one or you have a bad day at work and to come home and to try and have the same sort of attitude has got to be really, really hard. Really, really hard. Did you, when you were growing up,
2: know, were you able to tell when your mom had good or bad days at work? (laughs) Well, she sold houses. So... You know, if you have clients, it's like, you know, people will be calling her at, like, you know, 10 p.m. Oh, my God, this is messed up, X, Y, and Z. But it's like, yeah, no, you're right about the career thing, too. It's like, the other day, man, I was like, hmm, I wonder, like, I was like, let me go find my mom's Remax bio. And it had, like, every award she had won, bro, and there was, like, a read more section. And I was like, oh, this doesn't, like, I can't fit this on my phone. I was like, but we never, my mom was never like, hey, look at me. This is what I'm doing. She would just be like, oh, yeah, like, we got this. And, but it was, like you said, like, as you've grown up, it's like, dang, like, I didn't even appreciate this person career-wise either, you know?
0: Do you think that's something that our generation will be a little bit different with in terms of, and that's not to say that boomers just don't don't share what they do at work or they're, they're just like, you know, whoever you're talking about they were unwilling to be able to open up that part of their lives. But do you think that's something that we now, like if when our generation has kids, we're gonna be a lot more open with kind of the day-to-day stuff? Or is it just pretty much impossible growing up to understand, like if my dad had told me all the intricacies of his job growing up, I would've been like, no, there's no way. And I listened to my, my mother-in-law. So like as a grown adult, I'm a 31 year old adult. And I spent three days with my mother-in-law, like listening to her on her calls and she works in insurance. And she even literally sat me down and said, do you want to see what I do every day? And I said, sure. And 20 minutes later, I couldn't have repeated a single sentence that she said because of how complicated some of that stuff was. Do you think we will be more of the generation that's like, hey, this is what you can do. This is how, you know, this is, this is how I do it. And we'll be more open about that process. Or do you think that's just something that's always going to be difficult for kids to understand?
2: No, I actually, I think that's a fantastic point. You're absolutely right. Cause like the boomer generation was so, you know, you go to work, you get home, you know, then you got family time and there wasn't a lot of, like I said, there wasn't a lot of, Hey, look at me. There wasn't a lot of like, even thinking that we'd be interested in that kind of stuff. But like, I feel like, yeah, like as my kids, you know, grow up, especially because what we do is objectively kind of like cool you know like you write about the sec like i'm sure when you have kids and they start turning five six seven and it's like oh no like my dad's at that game you know what i'm saying like that's gonna be super cool for me i make dumb gifts so i'm probably like, look at this gift i made today my kids be like shut up dad <laughs>
0: <laughs> i always loved um going to my mom my mom's a kindergarten gym teacher as i've said before and she's been doing that for like close to 20 i think she's been doing it for 20 years now or if, if it's not 20 it's very close to it but I always loved being able to go to work with her, even when I was in middle school or something like that. When you're kind of in the too cool for school type of phase and you're angsty and all that stuff, but just seeing the way that kids would respond to her because I loved gym class growing up. That was always so fun for me and getting to see the way that she interacted. I had probably a better feel for what my mom did on a day-to-day basis, but then to come home and like have to deal with my brother and I, I mean, gosh strength that it takes to do
2: that. It's like a whole Uh, whole other gym class after gym class.
0: (laughs) 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 Right? Same sort of deal. Nick Ruark says, my relationship with my mom has become much better since I got older. I think when I was young, I was just an immature kid who didn't appreciate anything. As I got older and matured, I have, to, I have come to appreciate things more. And of course, most importantly, my mother. Gotta appreciate a mom even more when she loves going to a college football game with you. And I uh, posted in the Facebook group a picture of himself with his mom at a Kentucky game. That's awesome. I love
2: that. you,
0: You get to do that way more than I think the average person does. Getting to experience the sports side, like your main passion with your mom like that, man, that is a luxury.
2: Yeah, and, like, the funny thing is she told – see, going back, like, we don't even think about this. At You know, like, after uh, we went to all the games last year, she's like, you know, I just, like, got into this stuff. Like, I've always been an LSU fan, but I just got into this stuff so we'd have more to talk about. And I'm like, that's the cutest thing ever, Bob. And, like, now <laughs> she, she'll call me back like, what do you think? Is it Max Johnson or is it Miles, the other guy? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you, who's your favorite?
0: She's got takes. I love it. I love it. My mom used to take me to – we when we used to go to games – like, the only – experience kind of like that. My brother and I would occasionally go with my mom and I think my aunt Megan would go as well. Megan's in the Facebook group, she's a big SEC fan now. Shout out. Um, well, we would go to, uh, we'd go to Northwestern football games. And I have memories of being able to do that on a Saturday and the bleachers are like half full and you're like, wait a minute, this is a big time. Um, but yeah, having that relationship with, with your mom is awesome because you kind of assume that you're gonna share similar sports interests with your dad and that's something that you couldn't always talk about. And I, I appreciated that so much to be able to talk about, you know, the Cubs or, or the Bulls, Bears, whatever, with my dad. But being able to, like, also have that side with your mom where your mom wants to go to tailgates and stuff, that's, that's so cool. I just always thought that was such an awesome thing. And not to say that all moms have to be into sports or anything like that, but just a mom who's kind of willing to open up that world. And like you said, well, I saw that you were interested in it, so I decided to be interested in it. That's, that's very, very impressive. Matthew Sedro, we'll close on this one. We got a we got, um, very, very good one from Matthew here. He says, my mother and I got pretty close towards the end of high school. And then when I went off to college, I couldn't really pinpoint why it happened. But there was a deeper level of trust that had built up. Um, then when her mom got cancer during my gap year after undergrad, I started to help her as much as I could with medical visits, etc., and we were able to bond more through that experience. Once my grandmother passed away last February, I was able to stay at home with my mom and watch movies and TV shows with her all day. During those several weeks before the world shut down, I silently helped her grieve by being there as a distraction and making different types of coffee for her to try, cooking, anything else that would keep her mind occupied. And now since I got engaged this past November, we've been planning my wedding together with my fiance and her family, which is a whole new wonderful experience to share with your mother. I think our relationship has really grown over the past five years because of all these things. And I'm very grateful for it, the good and the bad. So well said, so, so well said. Growth with a relationship with your mom is just such a thing that you don't think is going to happen for a very long time. Always see your mom in the same exact role growing up. And you always think that she's going to tell you what you're doing, like what to do and all that. And I had so many memories growing up where I'm like, God, why is my mom doing this? Why is she doing that? And now looking back on it, I mean, same sort of deal where the relationship has just evolved into a place where now you know you can confide in her, and you can hopefully you know people listening to this you have a relationship with your mom that you feel like she has become someone that you can truly open up to, and that's just such a such a great thing to have. So thank you, Matthew, for opening up to us and being willing to to share that. Will any any closing thoughts here as we we close close the book on moms? Gosh, that sounded wrong to say.
2: No, no, he you're absolutely right. He crushed it. Um always always good stuff from him but yeah man no that's that's i'll just i'll just end on that because just nailed it
0: love your moms treat your moms great hopefully your relationship with your mom is a good one Big, big first-time guest lined up for next week. Really, really looking forward to that. going to be a fun one. I think people will enjoy. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Like, subscribe, all that stuff. Go subscribe to our newsletter, Saturday.Football. Go subscribe to College Football Uncensored, wherever you get your podcasts. Join the Facebook group. Hear your name read on the air. We're figuring it out. We've got so much content planned on SaturdayDownSouth.com.
2: Thanks, guys. Talk soon.